0: Isaiah chapter number 41, and we preached a little bit out of this chapter on Wednesday night. I'm going to be preaching out of a little different area of it tonight, and I'm just asking for the Lord's help. You know, I need the Lord's help. I do. I can't do what I'm about to do without the Lord's help. I need His help, day in and day out. We really can't do nothing without the Lord's help, can we? Isaiah chapter number 41, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Isaiah chapter 41, verse number 1. The Word of God says this, Keep silence before me, O islands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together to judge Who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings? He gave them as dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his bow. He pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I the Lord, the first, and with the last I am he. The Isles saw it and feared, the ends of the earth were afraid, drew near and came. They helped every one his neighbor, and every one said to his brother, be of good courage. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smootheth with the hammer, him that smote the anvil, saying it is ready for the soldering, and he fastened it with nails that it should not be moved. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with thee shall perish. Thou shalt seek them and shalt not find them, even them that contended with thee. They that war against thee shall be as nothing and as a thing of naught. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm, Jacob, and ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument. Having teeth, thou shalt thresh the mountains, and beat them small, and shalt make the hills as chaff. Thou shalt fan them, and the wind shall carry them away. The whirlwind shall scatter them. Thou shalt rejoice in the Lord and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray together. Father, we love You and thank You for this opportunity, this privilege to gather in Your house, Lord. We want to thank You tonight. I want to thank You for Your Word. I want to thank You that it's perfect and inerrant, inspired and preserved in its entirety and in its authenticity and veracity. And Lord, we just ask that You would take Your Word tonight and make it real before us Lord, we know that it lives whether we acknowledge it or not, but we know it can live in us if we'll approach it with faith and with a heart that's open, and surrendered unto you. And I pray that that would be the operation that's performed tonight, that you'd speak to our hearts through your word. And Lord, that you'd draw us closer unto yourself. I commit unto you this service and everything born from it. We love you, Lord, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Three times in the 41st chapter of the book of Isaiah, the prophet tells us to fear not. Uh, this is going to be a little bit different kind of message tonight. And uh, what I really want to do is just maybe bear my heart to you, if that'd be all right. We're living in unprecedented times. We've never seen a time really quite like this in human history. And there are things that I see in our society today that are troubling. Now let's go ahead and, and, and set all of the pandemic stuff to one side and there's plenty of conversation I supposed to be had about all that. But even if we set that to the side and we look at what's transpiring today in our society, the things that we're growing comfortable with and the life that we're growing accustomed to, we're seeing a world that is being geared on and trained on a world system that the Bible speaks very clearly about as being the conditions of the world during the tribulation period. Let me make a few statements about that. One, I believe the church will be out of here before the tribulation starts. I believe that. I believe that we'll be raptured out before that takes place. I don't believe the man of sin will be revealed until after the church has been raptured out. I don't believe we'll go through the tribulation. That being said, I would say this. We have no idea the condition of things right up at the rapture. We don't know how things will look. I've been spending some time in our Sunday school class on Sunday mornings talking about a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that Antiochus Epiphanes was an emperor of the Seleucidan Empire, which was part of one of the four empires that was left over after Alexander the Great died. And after about 20 years of infighting in his family, they finally busted his empire up into four uh, kingdoms, four empires. And Antiochus Epiphanes uh, was one of the rulers of that empire. The Bible draws a real close line between his character and his life and his actions and the character and life and actions of this man of sin, the Antichrist, that's spoken of in several places in the Word of God, but most predominantly in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we've been exercising our mind on in Sunday school is just to look at some of the way he rose to power, some of the things that he did, how he accomplished what he accomplished. And I'll not preach it, it's another message, but suffice it to say, when you look at how he behaved and how he conducted himself and how he assumed power, and if you were to look at a world today around us, you'd say this, it'd be time for another Antiochus to come on the scene. For surely he would have been a capable uh, leader of men in these days that we're living in. And certainly in some ways he'd be more capable, for there's more of an apparatus for the oppression of individual rights and for the administration of a massive state system, a massive global government system. By the way, let me say this. This isn't an election hangover I'm talking about tonight. This isn't a upset that my side won or lost or your side won or lost or whatever it is. It ain't got nothing to do with that. And it ain't got nothing to do with, with you know, the pandemic or whatever varying degrees it might have. It simply has to do with the fact that when you're 33 years old, and you know you may, if the Lord tarries, walk this earth for another 40-something years. And you're praying about that. And you're raising kids. And you know you're going to live to raise grandkids if the Lord tarries. Uh, there's some areas where it's easy to be fearful. I ain't talking about you tonight. I'm talking about me tonight. I'm not talking to our, our over-50 crowd or over-60 crowd or over-70 crowd. I'm talking about us young pups with kids. There's some things that we're worried about. There's some things we're troubled about. We're not just running out the clock. We're going to raise our kids in this world, whatever it looks like. And we're going to have to survive these long days, whatever they may be. Now, none of that may affect you. None of it may mean anything to you. But I'll just tell you, it's easy for, and I've been talking to a lot of It's easy for people my age to be scared as they look down. There's two kinds of people, it seems, in the world that we live in today. And I guess this speaks to the difference in perspective that life provides. It seems like we've got two kinds of people. People scared of dying and people scared of living. And I'm one of them scared of living sometimes. I'm not saying any better than those scared of dying. I'm just saying that's that's where we're at today. Is when we look at a world unfolding before us that is, is fraught with challenges that we would have never thought. Decisions we would have never thought about. Uh, making choices and drawing lines in our life and having to say, I'd stand here no matter what. I'm not gonna move from this place. I, listen, I ain't talking about shutting churches down. I'm, I'm talking about in our personal life having to say, I value this more than I value my life. Or I value this more than I value my freedom. Questions that probably for a couple of generations men haven't had to ask. We've been very blessed in our country with the freedom and liberties that we've enjoyed. I don't say any of that to shuffle around any blame or anything. Not interested in that tonight. There's days I am interested in it. Somebody say amen, but not tonight. Instead, I guess what I'm trying to get you to understand, a few months ago when all this stuff was starting, I was preaching on this passage, fear not, and I was preaching about you. But tonight I'm preaching on it and I'm preaching about me. In other words, back then I was preaching at it and, and my heart and my mind was to say, you know, God's people need to meet this thing and not have fear in their hearts and lives. I still believe that tonight. But tonight what I'm saying is I'm looking at those of us that have some, some years ahead of us. I'm saying we're going to have to figure out who we can trust in. I'm not talking about human beings. I'm talking about the God that sits in heaven. Well, we're going to have to learn. I think as we preach the message, you'll understand a little bit better what I mean. This passage opens up by talking about a man. He's called in this passage the righteous man from the east. Most commentators suggest that this is talking about Cyrus the Great. I can certainly understand why they believe that, and uh, and I don't necessarily argue with it. God raised up Cyrus the great Persian ruler in order to uh, to conquer the Babylonians and in order to set free the Judean captives. And whenever Cyrus and the Persians assumed the world stage, it was a jarring thing. I think that sometimes. Because if we as Bible believers have such a scriptural perspective on history, we miss a greater secular context to history. We think of the Medo-Persians. If I was to say to most Bible students, who are the Medo-Persians? Most of us would say, they're the folks whooped the Babylonians. That's what we'd say. But you understand the Persians were one of the most formidable world empires ever to exist. Xerxes, who is the Ahasuerus of the book of Esther, was one of the greatest military and political minds ever to live. He amassed an army of between one and two million, depending on which historical uh, record that that you give credence to, and marched on uh, Greece. And we all kind of forget about it because of the Battle of Thermopylae and the way that the Spartans acquitted themselves. Uh, but the reality is Xerxes was one of the mightiest influences and powers throughout human history. And God had raised His empire up and had, through Cyrus, raised the empire up before Xerxes, long before he was ever the the king and the emperor of the Persian Empire. God had raised them up for a season and a time and a distinct purpose. And when they were uh, marching onto the world scene, it was a troubling thing. Here you had a world leader stepping onto the scene. You didn't know how he felt about you. You didn't know what he thought about you. You had a whole new system of warfare different than what men had ever seen before. You had a complete reshuffling of the political system in a way that had never been done before. All the old players didn't matter anymore. The Assyrians were nothing. Uh, The Egyptians were nothing. The Babylonians had just got whooped. And who is this new guy on the block? And what's it going to mean for everything? So the Holy Ghost utters these words... And he tells the islands, in other words, talking about the Mediterranean there and the various political powers, you indeed should be fearful and you indeed should fear. But then he turns and looks at his people and he says, but you know, no matter what the future holds, you have no reason to fear. Again, looking at a world, we don't know how it's going to look. I'll tell you, this looks different today than it did a year ago. Very different. Now, you may agree or disagree with whatever's been done in that, but no question that none of us would have guessed this is what would, where we'd be. So that then begs the question of what we're going to be saying this time next year. Next time we throw the Christmas card boxes out and put wreaths up, what are we going to be talking about? What will be different? And again, for maybe some that are in a season of life where you're, you're running out the clock, you, you know that you know you, you may live to see some of it, but it's not going to be your burden to carry Man, I envy you. I mean that. You may look at it and say, oh, you don't understand. You're ignorant. You're young. You're this and that. You probably think that anyway. But suffice it to say, in some ways, I envy you. Those of us that are looking, wondering when this guy's going to step on the scene. Wondering when things are going to be reshuffled again. Wondering what it's going to look like. Wondering what kind of world our babies are going to grow up in. And even more terrified to think what kind of world our grandbabies are going to grow up in. It's good peace to my heart tonight to hear the Lord say to me three times, fear not. Fear not. What does He tell him not to fear? I'm going to give you these three thoughts and be done this evening. I figure you probably either love me or hate me by now anyway. Amen, Fred. Don't tell me which. Just the amen's good enough. The amen's good enough. Look back with me at verse number 8, would you? God, when He opens up this word of encouragement to the children of Israel, He says this, But thou, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. You know, God's never redundant in anything He does. He's never needlessly redundant. He might be redundant, but He ain't never superfluous. He never does it for no reason. There's a reason behind everything that He does. We'll say a word about why here in a moment. But it sounds to me like God wants to know exactly who He's talking to. He's talking to Israel. The descendants of Jacob. The descendants of Abraham, His friend. He says, Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof and said unto thee, Thou art my servant. I have chosen thee and not cast thee away. He says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. And then He says this, Be not dismayed. And what does it mean to be dismayed? It means to be so despaired, so discouraged that you quit, that you give up, that you quit. He says, for I am thy God, I will strengthen thee. Why does he say I'll strengthen thee? He's worried about weakness. He says, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee. Why is he saying that? They're afraid they're going to fall down. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Now I don't know about you, but when I read that passage of Scripture, it sort of gets it in my mind that they were fearful of failure. They worried whether they'd have the strength to stand up in the day of affliction. The Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs that if we faint in the day of adversity, then is our strength small. Can I just bear my heart a little bit tonight? Sometimes my flesh bullies me and tells me that when the time comes, I'll fail. That I won't take a stand. That I won't hold a line. That I won't be willing to love my kids enough to do what's right in their life. How easy it would be to give in and fail. And can I tell you, there's times in my life, and I guess God's sort of shown me this a little bit because... You kind of live with this as a pastor because you live in the realm of of spiritual work. And you understand how important steadfastness is and you're surrounded, thankfully not church people, but you're surrounded by a world that is constantly instigating you to compromise and to give up give in and lay down and quit. And you've got to learn real early that God has the ability to help you stand in the day of adversity. I, again, I don't know what things will look like, and I, listen, I'm not up here to preach doom and gloom to you. I'm not. You, if you want that, turn on the news. You got all you want. I'm not. I'm not up here to do that. But I am up here to say this tonight. Uh, I worry that we're going to have to make some hard decisions. What I mean is, how much does worship mean to us? How much do our children mean to us, and the autonomy that we have over their life and raising? That's what I mean when I say that. How much do we value our freedom, our ability to defend ourselves? I'm saying we may come to a place that we have to find out how much that means. And I worry that when that day comes, I just ain't gonna have the strength for it. I worry when that day comes, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not courageous enough. I don't have the boldness. I don't have the backbone for it. But you know, I think that's what they were worried about. And God gently reminds them that they don't have to live in fear of failure. Now listen, if you in your life, if the Holy Ghost is talking to you about something about your life and something going on in your life, listen to him. Don't let my sermon get in the way of what he's trying to tell you. But suffice it to say this evening that I'm encouraged to know that throughout human history, the the men that stood didn't stand because they were superhuman. The men that stood didn't stand because they were made of something different than you and I. They stood because they served a God that stood with them, stood for them, stood underneath And so the Word of God gives us three reasons that we don't have to live in fear of failure. And this could be true of spiritual failure in your own life, doing the will of God. It could have to do with wanting to consecrate your life and commit and not indulge sin or not indulge some weakness or some compromise in your life or whatever it may be. Can I just remind you tonight that, listen, the men that God has used throughout history have been weak, frail, feeble human beings with a great, mighty God. They're made of nothing different than you and I. And God points to them. He gives us three reasons. One, the example of the patriarchs. He does not mention Isaac in this passage. And I find that interesting. Isaac really isn't talked about a lot throughout the Old Testament. I sort of believe the reason for that is because God didn't want Isaac's life messing up a good type of Jesus Christ. And certainly if you look close enough at anybody's life you'd see some things that don't agree with a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also interesting to me because by and large Isaac's life is not really marked by major failures. But can I notice this evening that the two men that God does mention their life were marked by failures. Notice the example of the patriarchs. Verse 8 he says, Thou Israel art my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen. I'd say Jacob was up in heaven uh, looking over the shoulder of the Holy Ghost and he said, don't use my name there. Use Israel. Israel's better. Israel means a prince with God. Don't use that Jacob that means supplanter and deceiver and trickster and talked about me when I was living in the flesh and trying to do my own way and do my own will. And the Holy Ghost said, hush, Jacob. They need to hear this. Jacob, whom I have chosen. The seed of Abraham, my friend. Now something we know about the life of both Abraham and Jacob is they both had lapses, didn't they? Abraham's life really begins with a lapse. His his story begins with a lapse. Especially depending on how you read the text of the Word of God, the first thing we know about Abraham is he was disobedient. Because when the Bible starts to talk about Abraham, it talks about the years that he lived in disobedience when he didn't go out from amongst his family as God had told him to. And then immediately after that, God speaks to him and he walks out, leads out in faith and goes and builds an altar and it's looking good. And then by the end of that chapter, he's down in Egypt running from God. You could go a little further in Abraham's life. You find a second episode where he did this, where he ran off down into the land of Philistines. Go a little further in his life, you'd find another episode where he uh, committed uh, an illicit relationship with his uh, with uh, with Sarah's uh, handmaid, so that he could try to, through his own means, provide an heir because he wasn't trusting God. In fact, you go through the life of Abraham, you'll find a lot of failures and mistakes. Two things you and I need to understand about failure, and we mentioned one of them this morning in the message that give us peace tonight. One, to understand that failure is not final. Everybody God has ever used has failed. Every single one of them. Every human being throughout human history has a spotted track record. They've all failed and God used them. And then to recognize that in spite of that failures, whatever successes existed in their life were never due to them in the first place. But it was always due to the strength of God in and through them. He mentions Abraham, but then he mentions Jacob. And if we can look at Abraham's life and find a few examples of of failure, we can look at Jacob's life, Brother Ken, and find just a few examples of faithfulness. Jacob was a man that spent more time out of the will of God than he did in the will of God. Why does God mention these two patriarchs? Well, He says about Jacob that He's chosen. He says about Abraham, Abraham was my friend. So evidently, to be used of God and to be close to God, we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be surrendered and willing when we've done wrong to deal with it. He gives the example of the patriarchs. And here's what I think he's saying. You know, all these guys that you revere and all these guys that you talk about and tell your kids about that did all these great things. He said, you know what they were? They were a bunch of failures with spits and furts of faithfulness. Uh, But in all of those things, I was faithful to them without fail. I see the example of the patriarchs. Number two, I see the experience of the past. Verse 9, he says this, Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth. Or it sounds like God has invested a lot in us, don't it? took us from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men. There, uh, Boy, it seems to be like God has a purpose in our life if He took us away from the work of being chief men and other tasks in life. And said unto thee, Thou art my... Servant. Boy, it looks to me that God has a plan for our life if He made us His servant. And it looks to be that God has some confidence in our ability to serve Him if He made us a servant. And He's omniscient, isn't He? He knows all things. He said, I have chosen thee and not cast thee away. Boy, it looks to me as though uh, God knew exactly how messed up we was before He ever got us. And knew how messed up we'd be and the mistakes that we would make throughout our life. Because He said, I have not cast thee away Now, why would you say a thing like that unless somebody's done something uh, that would cause you to cast them away? Uh, Let me give you a romance tip. Can I do that? Here's the wrong way to compliment your wife. Well, at least I ain't left you. That'd be a strange compliment, wouldn't it? At least I ain't kicked you out. Happy anniversary. Now, why would you say such a thing? Well, you might say such a thing if a person had done something that would have made it reasonable for them to do that. In other words, if something had been done that would have made it reasonable for you to walk off and leave or kick them out or whatever, and you're trying to convey to them your commitment, your expression to them and saying, though I could have done that, I have not done it because I have loved you in spite of the things that you've done. In other words, it sounds to me like God is saying, you know, you want to know whether or not you need to fear failure? Look at your past. I, this ain't going to fly well with Mr. Oldstein. Don't tell him I said this. He won't, We'll have to cut this out of the recording because he listens every week. I know he does. I hate to tell you this, friend, but we're all failures. We think that God would only use us if we is really good because we think we can be really good. The sooner we recognize that God has always used people in spite of themselves. And in demonstration of His grace and mercy, the sooner we'll recognize that God could use us too. We don't have to fear failure. You know why? Because failure is not final. And then we see the explicit promise of God. And I like this. Look at verse 10. He says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Now, let's pause here. And say tonight that if that's all of the verse that we got, it'd be enough. God says to us, I'm with thee. He says to us, I'll strengthen thee. He says to us, I'll help thee. And if God's with us and He strengthens us and He helps us, in other words, His presence is with us and He, he empowers us for the task at hand and he, he gives us wisdom for the task at hand and direction, He helps us, that'd be enough. But Then listen to what He says. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. In other words, here's what God says. There's going to be times you're not righteous enough. But I'm righteous enough for the both of us. Isn't that true? We look at Calvary. When he became sin for us, sin didn't wear out his righteousness. His righteousness wore out sin. There didn't come a point where God said, I've used up all your righteousness and there's still sin to be dealt with. No. Instead, listen, sin burnt out on the anvil of His righteousness, the inexhaustible quality of His impeccable nature, of His perfect sinlessness. I'd say this, He's righteous enough for the both of us. And the way I know that is because right now, He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. So Brother Charlie, He must be pretty righteous, or He couldn't be at the right hand of God the Father. And then beyond that, the Bible tells us that we can enter with boldness into the throne room of grace because we have a high priest seated at the right hand of God the Father. So he's righteous enough for him and me both. So here's the answer. I worry. I do. I worry more than I should. I worry more than a preacher ought to. I look and I say, Man, I'm I'm just afraid I won't be able to hold up when things get tough. I I'm afraid I, I'm afraid I won't have the strength. I'm afraid I won't have the courage. I'm afraid I'll fail the Holy Ghost whispers into my ear, Son, you've failed a lot of times before, but I have never failed you. You've messed up a lot before, but I've never messed up. And it's true that there may be times that you ain't enough, but I'll always be more than enough for the both of us. He says we're to fear not failure. Number two, I want you to notice tonight, we have another fear not. Look down at verse number 11. The... The prophet says, Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with thee shall perish. Thou shalt seek them and shall not find them, even them that contended with thee. They that war against thee shall be as nothing and as a thing of naught. For I, the Lord thy God, will will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. So the first fear not tells us to fear not failure. Sometimes I'm afraid of failure. But I'm glad to know even when I fail, He never fails. The second fear not tells us to fear not foes. He says there's some people that are going to marshal against you. And when the time comes, it'll be easy to be fearful. But He says you don't need to fear. For just as I have fought the battles of your forefathers, I too will fight for you. Now, what is this going to look like? Well, he he mentions about their hostility towards us. And he, he mentions sort of three things. He says, they that were incensed against thee. Then he says, they that strive with thee. Then he says, them that contended with thee. And then he finally says, they that war against thee. And you know what we find in that passage? We find a progression. The first we see is anger. They're incensed. The second we see is antagonism. Now they're not just angry with you, but they're trying to instigate you and they're trying to set themselves in opposition to you. They're striving with you. The third we see is affliction. They're contending with you. They're fighting with you. They're trying to oppress you. And the final we see is aggression. He uses the term war. If that makes you uncomfortable, get you a different Bible and answer to God for it. He says they that war against them. Now... This is going to sound like an alarmist thing. But I don't know how bad things will get before the tribulation comes. Let me say again, I believe the church will be out of here before the tribulation begins. But I don't know what things are going to look like. All I know is my Bible does give me a little idea of some of the conditions that have to exist for the events in the tribulation to take place. And then it tells me this about the trajectory of human civilization. It tells me that Perilous times shall come. Can I remind you that was written to the church? That wasn't written to Israel. That wasn't written just to the world at large. That was written to the church. Peril- so evidently before we leave this place, it's going to get a little perilous around here for us. We've been blessed to live in such freedom over the past 200 and odd years. I mean, uh, so much so that we've done forgot what oppression feels like. I mean, somebody looks at us cross-eyed and we say they've oppressed us. Somebody lies about us, we say they've oppressed us. We may have to learn the hard way, that ain't oppression, that's just humans bumping into each other. But we may have to taste some real oppression. I don't know what it's going to look like. I know that already Christians are being relegated to a second class tier in society. such a degree that the the quote-unquote rights of other religious groups and ideological groups are enshrined and protected. And the rights of Christians desiring that same level of protection is scoffed at. It is ridiculed. Now let me tell you something. You say, preacher, what are we going to do about that? We're going to get us a lobbyist and send him to Washington. A lot of fat good that do you and me. No, we're going to trust our God like Christians have always done. We're going to recognize that our peace ain't never come from government. And by the way, I'm as constitutional as it gets. Amen. I mean, I, I'm as constitutional as it, as it gets. I mean, I want, I want assault weapons and, and nuclear weapons and cannons and then a musket just to shoot off on 4th of July, amen? I, I'm as constitutional as it gets, but can I tell you something? Our peace never came from the Constitution either. God's people, long, long before those men signed that document, God's people had peace. They had it from the God of glory that sat on the throne. I don't know what things are going to look like, but I'll tell you this, we can expect some hostility. As God's people, we can expect that. And it's going to increase. So I see the hostility towards us, but then I see the help from heaven. God tells us how He dealt with that. He mentioned three things. I like this. First, He says uh, that those that do this will be ashamed and confounded. God says He will rob their peace. Peace. What does it mean to be ashamed? It means you've lost your confidence about something. If a person is ashamed of something they've done, they've lost their boldness in it. And then it says confounded. You know what that means? It means to be confused. If you're confused about it, then you're confounded. and You know what confounded means, amen? It means to be confused. What he says is this, they're never going to have any boldness in their actions. And when they commit them, all it will produce is confusion in their life. You know, listen, I know a lot of Christians ain't got peace. You better believe that folks afflicting Christians, God's not going to permit them to have peace. There's no peace to the wicked, saith the Lord. What we can rest in knowing is the first thing God's going to do, He's going to rob their peace. Now let me tell you, that does two things. One, it gives us hopefully an open door to escape, but the more important thing is hopefully it gives us an open door to influence. As the world gets crazier, the gospel becomes clearer. As the world gets more troubled, then the Savior that can calm the troubled waters of the soul becomes more appealing. Well, I always look through things through the prism of mercy. So God will rob their peace. Number two, He says this. He says they shall perish. God will ruin their plans. Can I tell you something? I have read the end of this book. And I do know how it ends. You do too. It ends with Christ on the throne. It ends with victory on God's side. And their plans will be thwarted. And then number three, he says he'll remove their presence. I like this. He said, thou shalt seek them and shall not find them. They'll be as a thing of naught. You'll go look for them. There won't be nobody there. You'll try to seek out those that afflict God's people. There won't be none of them to find. Now this will be a reality during the millennial kingdom and an even greater reality beyond that in the endless day that we enjoy. But can I tell you this? God has the ability. You know what i found? Can I just give you a little different perspective on this? i found that when I get my eyes on the Lord, I quit noticing whatever I want to define as persecution. I quit noticing that as much. When I get my eyes off the Lord, I start noticing how everybody's treating me. But if I get my eyes on the Lord, I quit paying no attention to that. Could it be the reason he says you'll seek him and find nothing is he's talking about the peace that dwells in the heart of a people whose hearts are trained upon God. And it ain't that there ain't people persecuting them. It's that when they look in their life, all they can see is the good grace of God and his problems. So I see in this passage the help from heaven. But then I want you to notice this. This really interested me. Notice the hand within yours. Verse 13, the Lord said, I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, fear not, I will help thee. I think that's amazing. The Lord could have said, I'll hold thy hand if He just merely wanted to convey that He'd be there to comfort us and give us peace. But He doesn't. He says, Brother Ken, I'll hold thy right hand. Now we understand this is a biological truth, but it's also a scriptural truth that the vast majority of people in the world are indeed right hand. I won't take a I won't take a poll tonight because you'd lie just to embarrass me and laugh at me, but it's the truth, and you know it. The vast majority, there's a few lefties and South Pauls out there, my daddy is one, and uh, most of them are mean because they got beat for being left-handed when they was young, but, you know, other, they got over that, you know, and, but suffice it to say, it's interesting God denotes the right hand. You know why? The right hand is the dominant hand for most people. It's the hand of action. It's the hand of adeptness, and it's the hand of accuracy. In fact, we might say this, if a man was going to fight a battle, he'd sure enough want his right hand free. I'm going to say that again. If a man was going to fight an enemy, he'd sure enough want his right hand free. But the Lord says, I'm going to hold your right hand. He doesn't say you're going to hold my right hand, and indeed we find he's already doing something with his right hand. He's upholding us with the righteousness of His right hand. But you understand, unless two people were going in opposite directions, and we ought not be going opposite directions of the Lord, if I'm going down this way and I'm holding on to His hand, I'm holding His left hand with my right hand. It's the only way I can do it. It's the only way that I can hold His hand with my right hand and us headed the same direction is for me to be holding His left hand. You know something convenient? Holding His left hand with our right hand means we can't do nothing with our right hand, but His right hand is free to do anything it needs to do. (laughs) Now, if you ain't getting what I'm throwing down yet, I'm saying this. Instead of us fighting the battles, we're holding on to Him. And by us holding on to Him, it frees up His right hand to fight our battles for us. In other words, don't take vengeance. Take God's hand. His right hand is still free to act. All we got to do is just slip our right hand. You say, but preacher, that's the hand to use. That's the point. Put it in God's hand. Give everything you are and everything you do and everything you try, just put it in His hand. And you say, but preacher, how can He do it? Don't worry, His right hand is still free. It's still free. So we ought to fear not foes. And then finally, and I'm done tonight, I want you to notice this third fear not. We ought to fear not failure. Sometimes I'm afraid of failure. But I'm glad I have a God that never fails. Sometimes I'm fearful of foes. Sometimes I worry to myself, what happens when persecution really hits in our country? Can I stand up? And the truth is, I don't know if I can or not, but I know if I'll let God fight my battles for me, He can. But then the third tells us to fear not formidable barriers. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, Fear not, thou worm, Jacob, ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument, having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains and beat them small. Shalt make the hills as chaff. Thou shalt fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. And thou shalt rejoice in the Lord and shout glory in the Holy One of Israel. Now what's a mountain? A mountain is something you've got to go around. if You're going to get anywhere. All throughout human history, mountains have been viewed as great impassable barriers. If an army was going to march on, they had to figure out how to get around the mountain. If a road was going to be built, they had to figure out how it was going to deal with the mountain. If a traveler was going to get his destination and there was a mountain in the way, his chief problem is how is he going to get through the mountain? But here God says, well, fear not the mountains. Now, I don't know what the mountain is in your life and mine. I could think of a thousand examples, and really in keeping with how we've sort of been framing the message, man. I look at some of the things, I look at the prospect of raising my kids in a God-hating world and praying and begging God that they'll turn out to love Him. Boy, that's a mountain. That's a mountain. I think about trying to pastor our little church and do it in such a way that everybody gets to heaven without killing each other first. It's a mountain. I think about the things that may sit in front of me. But you know, really, it's kind of like that thorn that Paul had. It really don't matter what the mountain is because God's bigger than the mountain. What does he tell us here? Well, first he gives us the proper perspective. Notice the description he gives of man. He says, fear not, thou worm Jacob, and he men of Israel. This is the opposite of what the motivational speaker down at the airport will tell you. This is the opposite of what the television preacher will tell you. They'll tell you that you ain't no worm, you're a wonder. But the Word of God tells you, you ain't no wonder, you're a worm. first thing we need is a right perspective. Ain't nobody helped by being lied to. Let's go ahead and admit we are what we are. We're worms. And then what he says next ain't much better. He says, you men of Israel. And you say, preacher, why ain't that much better? Remember, Israel is the northern kingdom and it's the godless kingdom. What he's saying here is you're a bunch of wicked men and you're a bunch of worms. Now, why is that good to hear tonight? Well, it's good to hear because it's true. We could, Somebody could lie to us and tell us we're great. The problem is we know us. And we'd know it ain't true. If you start off by saying to me, Toby, you are the most handsome man I've ever seen. I know not to believe a word that comes out of your mouth. Anything else you say. If God had come to us and said, boy, you're a wonder, I'd go, Are you talking about me, God? But he says, boy, you're a worm. And I said, yeah, Lord, you're, that, you're, you're, you're singing my song. You're talking to me. Notice the description of man. Then notice the description of the Almighty. He says, I will help thee, saith the Lord. That's Jehovah. It's the God that led him through the Red Sea. It's the God that's worked miracles. He says, thy Redeemer, the one that seeks to redeem our life and make it worthwhile. And then he says the Holy One of Israel. In other words, the first key to facing any obstacle in life is to go ahead and admit that you ain't nothing and you can't handle it on your own. But right on the heels of that, go ahead and acknowledge that God is everything and He can handle anything on His own. The, the world, the secular world would have us lie to ourselves and flip it around and say we don't even know if God exists, but man is splendid. But the Word of God gives us the right assessment. It says man ain't nothing, but the Son of Man, He's everything. God is everything we need. So the first thing to do is acknowledge, you and I, we ain't big enough for that barrier, that obstacle. We're not. And if that was all there was to be said about it, it would leave us in a place of despair. But it's not the last to be said about it, because we ain't brought God into the equation yet. Whatever you're facing, go ahead and admit, I can't handle this. On my own. And even if I could do it, I'd probably mess it up. So I don't need to handle this on my own. But the God I love and know and serve, the God that loves me, He's capable. We see the proper perspective. Then notice the prescribed process. And there's two things mentioned. There's a weapon and there's a wind. Notice the weapon that is described. I I jotted it down this way. The weapon that carves the mountain apart. He says, behold, I make thee a new sharp threshing instrument, having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains and beat them small and shalt make the hills as chaff. Can I tell you something I, I learned in, in ministry? When you're in ministry, you're not your own boss. The Lord, of course, is your boss and your church that you minister to. But, but suffice it to say, you, you're sort of the manager of your own time. And sometimes when you're sitting there trying and you're looking at a task that's ahead of you, if you look at the whole mountain, it's daunting. So you know what you got to do? You've got to break it down into actionable steps. Don't look at it and say, if you're building a deck, you don't look at it and say, number one on my list today, build a deck. If you do, what you're going to do is sit on the couch and watch YouTube videos of other people building decks. You ain't going to do nothing. Instead, you say, first step, go to the store. Here's my list. This is what I'm going to buy. Next step, hire somebody that knows how to build a deck. But, but suffice it, you break it down into actionable steps. You know God takes the same approach for the spiritual barriers that we face. When I think about a sharp tool, a sharp instrument, I don't know about you, but I think about the Word of God. Now, whether or not the Holy Ghost is talking explicitly about that in this passage, we'll call it an application But suffice it to say in our lives that the the weapon that carves the mountain of the barriers that we face apart is the Word of God. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And you know what the Word of God does? It provides us with the step-by-step instruction we need to face any obstacle. We could say it this way. It beats small any mountain. Say, preacher, how how am I going to hold up? You just keep doing what you know is right from your King James Bible. You just keep doing what you know is right. Preacher, I don't know if I can make it through another six months of this. I don't know if you can either. But you ought to go out swinging, at least if you don't. And you know how you do that? You just keep your head in your Bible and keep doing what your King James Bible tells you. Preacher, I don't know how. My family, I'm worried about them. I'm burdened for them. Just keep your head in that Bible and keep doing what God told you to do. It's the threshing instrument that beats to chaff, that beats to pieces any obstacle that we face Because it tells us what the very next step is in our life. We wish it always told us what the 35th step was. It don't always work like that. When that step comes along, God will give us the instruction we need. But what it does is it tells us how to face anything. Then number two, you know what I notice? Not only the weapon that carves the mountain apart, but I see the wind that carries the mountain away. Here's the problem. Alright, preacher, I know how to do it, or I know what to do rather, but I don't know how to do it. I know what I need to do, but I feel like a failure and I keep making commitments to God and I keep telling God that it's going to be different this time and it's going to change and I keep failing. And I, the mountain has been beaten down small. I know what God expects of me, but I can't seem to find it within me to do it. In fact, Paul said it this way. He said that uh, that spirit and the, uh, the flesh, they lust one against another, contrary, one against another, so that you cannot do what you would. In other words, when you indulge your flesh, you won't do what the Spirit tells you. If we, if we let the Spirit of God have the right of way and the leadership in our life, we'll find that the flesh doesn't get satisfied, doesn't govern us, doesn't rule us. So what's the wind? He says in verse 16, thou shalt fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. What's the wind that carries them out and away? It's the Spirit of God. It's the Word of God that breaks it down into the steps. But you know, sometimes even the smallest of steps I struggle to be able to carry out. If I'm honest with you, it seems to be the very simple things that trip me up the most of Kim. So a person might despair in saying, Preacher, I know, what I, I know I ought to read my Bible every day, but I struggle to read my Bible every day. Uh, preacher, I know I ought to pray every day, but I struggle to pray every day. Preacher, I know I ought to be in the house of God, but I struggle to be in the house of God. How do I deal with these things? It's a mountain, Preacher. How do I face it? The same way we face everything in life. Not by striving, but by surrendering the leading of the Holy Spirit moment by moment in our everyday life. In other words, we don't will it into being, but rather we allow God to work on our heart when He tells us what to do, we do it. We want to outsource the Christian experience to one major decision. And somehow we've been taught to believe that's how it works. We come down to an altar and we weep and we beg God and we give it to Him. And we get up and all of a sudden we're super Christian. But you won't find that anywhere in your Bible. You know what the, you know what the Christian experience is? It's a day by day thing. He gives us our daily bread. Paul said, I died daily. The Bible says, this is the day that the Lord hath made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. When it comes to provision, when it comes to praise, when it comes to performance, it's a day by day thing. And so there's no way to farm it out, make one decision and Say that's gonna be good enough to make you a super Christian in your life. Now I ain't talking about getting saved. I'm talking about being consecrated before the Lord and having victory in your life. We wish we could do it that way, but I'm sorry, friend, it don't work that way. It's a day by day thing. But you know there's a sweetness in that. You know why? I don't know why it is, but as human beings, we view the world day by day. Everybody's uh, experience of existence is framed on the idea of the day. You say, we don't say, what are you gonna do next month? We say, what are you gonna do tomorrow? We don't say, I can't wait till this month is over. I do, because it's December. I won't get into all that. But we don't say, I I can't wait till this day is We say, or month, we say, I can't wait till this day is over. So you know what the good thing about it is? You're probably going to mess up on a lot of days. But as long as the Lord carries, there's another one coming right after it. Get back up in the saddle and do it again the next day. That's the wind that carries it away. Day by day, surrendering the Spirit of God's leading. And we could talk about how winds picture the Holy Ghost, but I think you're a student of the Bible enough to know that. You know John chapter 3 and all the different passages that equate the two. But I'm saying this, there's a prescribed process. What do I do, preacher? I'm facing huge obstacles. Break them down by reading what the Word of God says and do what God instructs you. Preacher, I want to, but I struggle to. I know you do, so do I. Our flesh hates it. We've got to surrender to the Lord day in and day out. And then we notice finally, and I'm done proclaiming the he says, and thou shalt rejoice in the Lord and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. Boy, that's what I want my life to look like. We find that this passage begins with them fretting and it ends with them praising. It begins with God having to say, now listen, just trust me, don't fear. Fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. But it ends by saying, listen, if you'll let me govern your life and have, have the will and the way, you'll be praising the God of Israel. You'll be rejoicing in Him. tells me this, that how we meet these next few years, whatever they may hold, or next few decades, if the Lord tarries, whatever they may hold, uh, my condition is not contingent upon the society I live in, but rather upon the Spirit of God that lives within me and the Scriptures of God that undergird me. We can have peace in the Lord tonight. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altars are open, and if the Lord spoke to you, you ought to meet Him down here. Whatever He dealt with you about, you ought to meet Him down here. Oh, I'm glad we can trust Him tonight. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.